welcome to episode two of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists for dermatologists and the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts, Luke Johnson. I am an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Utah. I am a pediatric dermatologist by training, and I also see adults. And with me... I'm Michelle Tarbox. I am an assistant professor of dermatology and dermatopathology in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. And I'm also a self-proclaimed dermoscopy nerd. The goal of Dermosphere is to update our listeners on the recent research in our field. So every episode we pick a handful of articles that we think are especially clinically relevant, and we review what we think are the most salient details. If you want links to the original articles, you can visit our website, dermospherepodcast.com. Our first article is going to be a research letter out of the University of Utah. It is a single-site retrospective cohort study, which looks at adverse cutaneous drug reactions with antimalarials in cutaneous lupus and dermatomyositis. And the chief authors are Christian Gonzalez and Jenny Clark. And this is a nice study that looked at the prevalence of adverse cutaneous drug reactions in patients who are treated with either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. In our literature, it's reported that these reactions are more common in dermatomyositis with a reported rate in the literature between 13 and 39% and are more rare in uh, cutaneous lupus erythematosus. So they looked at 180 patients with dermatomyositis, about 44 of those, and cutaneous lupus erythematosus, 136 of those patients, and looked at the frequency of the adverse cutaneous drug reactions in both groups, and actually determined that they were really pretty much the same, 4 and 5%. They had a few patients that were actually rechallenged with hydroxychloroquine after they had the onset of the adverse cutaneous drug reaction, and none of those patients had recurrence. So that might support the idea that you may be able to rechallenge a patient who develops one of these adverse cutaneous drug reactions, what can take the form of lichenoid eruptions or decarial eruptions or exanthematous eruptions. There are also case reports of successful chloroquine treatment in patients who had an adverse cutaneous drug response to hydroxychloroquine, so that's another possible alternative therapy for those patients. They did remark that there are ethnic and geographic differences in antibody types that have been reported in the literature, and their patient's population was a little bit homogeneous. The majority of them were Caucasian, and the majority of them were female. They also noted that patients with ubiquitin-like modifier 1 activating enzyme autoantibodies may be at an increased risk of antimalarial um, adverse cutaneous drug reactions. They did not have any kind of figures on how many of their patients might actually possess that specific antibody. And I thought it was a nicely done research letter. It's a nice quick read. Um, it does have some limitations in that it is a retrospective study. Uh, the sample size wasn't huge because of the rarity of the conditions, and it is a single institution. They related also that they did not have the DM-specific autoantibody testing during much of the study period, so that was not assessed but they advocated that they didn't have any increased frequency of these adverse cutaneous drug reactions in patients with dermatomyositis, and that antimalarial drugs are a useful therapeutic option for both types of patients, either dermatomyositis or cutaneous lupus erythematous patients. And patients who develop mild uh, adverse cutaneous drug reactions may successfully be rechallenged so that they can continue therapy if it's beneficial for them. So I thought it was a nice encapsulated study, had some salient findings. I was surprised that their rates of 
the adverse responses in dermatomyositis were a little bit less common than uh, those reported in the literature. I do think it might be possible that certain types of skin are more likely to show these adverse cutaneous drug reactions. Where I practice in Texas, we have a lot more patients with type 3 and 4 skin, and I think that we see more of the hyperpigmentation that can occur from uh, chronic hydroxychloroquine use here, especially coupled with our chronic sun exposure. I did notice that all of their adverse reactions were with hydroxychloroquine rather than chloroquine, but it's because perhaps only 4% of their patients were on chloroquine. Yeah, they didn't have a whole lot of patients on chloroquine, which is understandable. The possible retinal toxicity of chloroquine has been reported to be significantly higher than that of hydroxychloroquine, which is one of the reasons why we sort of moved to using that drug more prevalently. So I don't know if they have enough power in the study to really demonstrate any significant increase in adverse events from the chloroquine, but I did think that was also interesting. Kind of made me wonder why they didn't just pick their patients on hydroxychloroquine. No offense, <laughs> colleagues at the University of Utah. It was, it was nice to have some of that information included. The only other major difference between the two groups were that, understandably, the patients with cutaneous lupus erythematosus were younger than the patients with dermatomyositis, which makes sense if you think about the demographics of both conditions. I also was reassured that it looks like the adverse cutaneous drug reactions occurred fairly quickly after starting the medication. So they said their reactions occurred up, you know, five to 14 days after starting hydroxychloroquine. So hopefully, if you go at least two weeks, you're kind of out of the woods. Yeah, I think that that was a nice thing to see. And also that none of the reactions were very severe. So that's also fairly reassuring. Cool. All right. Shall we move on? I like it. All right. I'm excited to talk about this next one, which uses the, uh, it's a review article about using HPV vaccines to treat um, warts and other various cutaneous conditions. So this is also from the JAD. It's uh, published ahead of print here in April of 2019 from a group out of UC Irvine. Uh, the first author is Christine Pham and the um, primary author is Natasha at, oh man, sorry, oh. these names are a little difficult. Natasha oh, Mesenkovska. I actually know her, so it's Mesenkovska. It's like, uh, a, like a machine. So her name is Natasha Tanaskova Mesenkovska. You said that much better than I did. <laughs> I hope I said it right, because she's a friend. So the, um, this is a review of about 4,400 patients. And the upshot is that the HPV vaccine seems to be a reasonable option as a treatment for cutaneous warts, genital warts, and a few other conditions. So again, it's a vaccine, so it's aimed to prevent things, but this review looked at it to treat these conditions. It's nice for a couple reasons. One is that, uh, you know, we in the medical community Pretty, feel pretty strongly that vaccines are a good idea, and there are a group of people out there who seem to think vaccines are not a good idea. So anything that adds a little bit more strength to our argument, I think, helps, even though there's a lot of people out there who don't seem to respond to logic when it comes to the vaccine <laughs> argument. Um, and also, I want more treatments for warts. It's hard to treat warts. Um, so, as a background, 
I've started recommending the HPV vaccine um, to a number of my pediatric patients, basically anybody who's in the FDA-approved age range, which is 9 to 26, I'll often tell parents, yeah, have they received the HPV vaccine? There's some data that can show it can be helpful for common cutaneous warts, and I think probably everybody should get it anyway. So it's a nice way to recommend it as well. So in this article, um, I don't think I mentioned the title. It's called The Human Papillomavirus Vaccine as a Treatment for HPV-Related Dysplastic and Neoplastic Conditions, a Literature Review. So they looked at 63 articles. This was mostly clinical trials, case reports, and case series, about 4,400 patients. They had cutaneous warts, they had genital warts, and then they had some other stuff, a little bit of non-melanoma skin cancer, interestingly, a lot of CIN, some recurrent respiratory papillomatosis, and all of these responded um, pretty well to HPV vaccination. During the period of the review, most of the vaccines were not the current nonavalent vaccine. <laughs> they were the bivalent or quadrivalent vaccine, or they were sort of other experimental vaccines. So take that for what it's worth. Hopefully, um, the nonavalent vaccine is more effective than you, less valent vaccines, you think the more valence is the better, um, but this didn't study them particularly. So the cutaneous warts, which is what I'm most interested in, they had 64 patients total in their review, which was from one retrospective cohort study, uh, three case series and 11 case reports. So 64 patients and 75% of them experienced a significant decrease. And total clinical remission was observed as early as 10 days. I like it. There's probably some publication bias. People report case series and case reports of successes rather than failures. Um, but still, three quarters is pretty good. There were also 386 patients who had genital warts. And 55% of them who received an HPV vaccine had complete regression of genital warts. So 55%. Also, you know, not bad. Uh, I was talking to another dermatologist about this article yesterday, and she said, you know, in my experience, it's kind of equivocal. Like half of patients come back and say, you know, this is a miracle, and half of patients, it does nothing. Uh, but in my opinion, like half a chance of a miracle is pretty good, especially for a treatment that probably everybody should be having anyway. Uh, these genital warts, there was this currently non-commercial MVA vaccine that worked the best in their review. And in a phase one slash two clinical trial with 30 male patients, the vaccine was administered directly into the urethra once a week for four weeks. That'll wake you up. Yeah. So on behalf of men everywhere, I'd like to say, <laughs> oh, gosh. you'd think there would be a better way to administer this vaccine. Um, do they have to be sedated for this? Yikes. Um, that, that doesn't sound super appealing anyways. I think those are the most important points of the article. Seems to work okay for cutaneous warts. Seems to work okay for genital warts. There's an interesting little blurb about non-melanoma skin cancer. So they identified just three reports, so three patients. They were adults who had heavy burdens of squamous cell carcinomas and basal cell carcinomas who were treated with the HPV vaccine just to, like, decrease overall SCC burden. Um, but they also got significant clinical regression in both their squames and their basal cells. Wow. A little bit weird. So as far as we know, HPV doesn't have anything to do with basal cell carcinomas, but in these reports anyway, they seem to do better. So also interesting. 
there's an entity called basosquamous carcinoma or basosquamous cell carcinoma that's sometimes discussed occurring in usually the genital area with confirmed cases of that. I think it's an overutilized term, but there is some hypothesis that HPV plays a role in the pathogenesis of that virus. So I don't know if that might have been part of that picture. That is interesting. Could have been. They did point out that we don't know if previously vaccinated patients respond differently. Um, so if you have a patient who's already had the HPV vaccine and they have a bunch of warts, is it worth giving them another round of the HPV vaccine kind of as to treat the warts? As they say, we don't really know, but there's no evidence saying it's a bad idea. So you might as well go for it. I think probably from a practical standpoint, the primary issue is, you know, if you're out of the FDA approved range, you might have to pay for it out of pocket. I have yeah, no idea how much it costs. I can tell you because um, as a person who takes care of patients that have all kinds of HPV-related conditions, I thought it would be a real good idea to take advantage of the protection a vaccine like that could offer. So actually, when the quadrivalent vaccine came out, the age range was much narrower and the, it was primarily focused on children. Um, but I went ahead and paid for that vaccine series on my own. And it was under $1,000 to get all three of the series. Um, and then when the non-avalent came out, I was like, uh, sign me up for that too, because that's broader protection. And so that was around the same cost out of pocket as a person who wasn't following within the age range in which it is prescribed. Um, you know, I think that there are several thought leaders in dermatology, especially dermatologic surgery, who advocate for all dermatologists to at least think about getting the vaccine themselves because of the prevalence of HPV subtypes in squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck and our lack of understanding of how well the virus might be aerosolized in the plume of cautery or laser if you do laser treatments. So I think it's worthwhile to get. I, you know, It's worth the minor arm discomfort and the little hit to the pocketbook, in my personal opinion, for any dermatologist, unless you have some kind of allergy to it, to get it. But would it be worth the urethral discomfort? <laughs> I'm not sure I'd advocate it if that was the method of preferred administration. I'm okay with a shot in the arm, though. So a little bit under $1,000, it sounds like. For all three. Yeah. All right. That sounds like doable for most dermatologists, maybe not pediatric dermatologists, but most dermatologists out there. But not an option for some of our patients, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But for some of them, it could be. And there's a lot of them that still fall into the approved age range, which is, once again, age 9 to 26, males and females. Um, I think this is just more fuel in my fire to recommend it. And the other thing they point out in the article is that we we assume that there's some kind of cross-protective effect because, you know, a lot of cutaneous warts are caused by strains that are not present in these HPV vaccines, but there's some kind of cross-protective effect, presumably. Yeah, so I'm, I'm ready to sign up for whatever next vaccine they come up with. If they come up with one that has 16 valences, I don't like violence, but I love valence. Sign me up. Heyo. <laughs> All right, well, my... My next article I'm super excited about because I am a self-proclaimed dermoscopy nerd. So this is a great study that came out of the International Dermoscopy Society, of which I am a member, full disclosure. And this is described in the clinical and dermoscopic features of cutaneous BAP1 inactivated melanocytic tumors, which they abbreviate as BIMTs. These lesions are also known as Wiesner nevi, and they're also, also known as BAPomas, although they do uh, relate that that is an informal designation. These tumors, while they somewhat appear innocuous, they're usually pink to pink brown or pink tan, dome-shaped papules have been associated with familial cancer syndrome that can involve germline mutations in BAP1. So I've heard about BAPomas before, but I guess we're not supposed to use that word because the 
BAP is actually inactivated, and the term BAPOMA makes it feel like it's extra BAPy. So apparently we're <laughs> supposed to call them BIMTs, I guess, B-I-M-T. Yes, BAP1 inactivated melanocytic tumors. The Wiesner nevus was actually the designation from the first article describing them, and that was actually a person in training who described these lesions first in the literature. Got to respect that. Yeah. But BIMT is now how we're pronouncing this? I don't know if it's BIMT or BIMT. Okay, well, you get to pick since you're reviewing the article. So I'm going to say BIMT because it reminds me of the song that's like BIMP. I don't know, silly. Okay, um, so the familial cancer syndrome is autosomal dominantly inherited and can be associated with mesotheliomas, uveal melanomas, renal cell carcinoma, and cutaneous melanomas. So patients who have multiples of these lesions may need to be screened for more occult malignancies, especially uveal melanoma, which can lack any kind of symptom or you know detectability until it's very advanced. So they looked into the diagnostic criteria of this, which is basically a biphasic melanocytic proliferation that has some normal-looking melanocytes that have normal BAP1 expression, along with some atypical melanocytes with loss of BAP1, which means they are not expressing BAP1. If you put the BAP1 stain on the tissue, those cells don't stain. Usually it's a nuclear stain. And often these same mutated cells do not make pigment. And frequently they have expression of VE1, which indicates a BRAF mutation. So they wanted to describe the clinical and dermoscopic features of these BIMTs. And they were able to achieve a data subset of 48 of these tumors from 31 patients. So some patients had multiple lesions. Those patients with multiple lesions most likely fell into that syndromic category. 22 of their patients that had lesions were women. They also identified 80 control patients that had lesions that fell within the clinical differential of a BIMT, so a dome-shaped pink or brown or pink tan lesion, which would include intradermal nevi, spitz nevi, neurofibromas, basal cell carcinomas, dermatofibromas, Merkel cell carcinomas, et cetera. And they had a dermatologist that was a part of the study randomized the clinical images and the dermoscopic images, and they had two expert dermoscopists, um, Dr. Margoub and Dr. Markal Marchetti, separately analyzed the lesions and described the dermoscopic features. They had a third dermatologist, Dr. Navarrete Deschent, who resolved the cases of non-concordance, and they identified five dermoscopic patterns within the BIMTs, two of which were only identified in BIMTs and not identified in any of the other tumors that fall within the clinical differential. So those two most specific patterns were structureless pink to tan with irregular eccentric dots and globules. They have some great figures in the article, which I definitely recommend anybody who is also a dermoscopy nerd or who uses a dermatoscope in their practice to review, because as we know, a picture is worth kind of a thousand words when we're looking at an image that is describing the dermoscopy. They also have some really nice figures. Here, I'll just hold it. Hold up the article to the microphone so uh, our oh, listeners yes, can, can, can exactly, listen to them. Exactly. So if you are following along with the article, it's on uh, page 1589 where they have some of the really nice figures demonstrating that structureless pink to tan area with the irregular or eccentric dots and globules. The other pattern that was only identified in the BIMTs were a network with raised structureless pink to tan areas. And what I really liked was that they correlated that somewhat to the histology where the network was being formed by the more normal melanocytes that had normal BAP1 expression and normal pigment elaboration. And these raised structureless pink areas or pink to tan areas were actually those nodules of those mutated melanocytes that lacked BAP1 expression and also typically don't produce pigment. And they look literally like they're just bubbling up through a normal network of a regular nevus. So it's almost like little 
kind of bubbles or, or little, almost little tiny individual tumors occurring within uh, normal nevus. And when you look at these under the microscope, they kind of look like that because you'll have a background of some normal looking melanocytes with these large, unusual nests of these mutated melanocytes that have abundant cytoplasm and very unusual nuclei and typically no pigment production. So those were the two most specific patterns. Other patterns they identified additionally were structureless pink to tan with peripheral vessels. That would be a somewhat worrisome pattern for some kinds of amelanotic melanoma, so usually something you would biopsy. Structureless pink to tan was another individual type of dermoscopic pattern identified in the BIMTs. And they also saw a globular pattern. That's a little bit more of a common pattern to see in a common type nevus. So you'd have, really have to have your antennae up for that. That particular subtype of dermoscopic finding was only described in sporadic BIMTs, not those in a syndromic patient. So I thought that, you know, that might be a little bit more of a kind of a wild type phenotype that's showing up there. Um, the, I think, importance of identifying these, lesion is, these lesions is well emphasized in the article where they talk about, you know, the potential occult malignancies that can occur in these patients. Uh, they also discussed that sometimes other types of malignancy are a little bit more common in patients who have these BIMTs, as is a personal or family history of melanoma. So these may be higher risk patients at baseline. And I think that this is a, a great thing to be aware of if you're a person who uses dermoscopy in your practice. Finding, identifying, and biopsying these lesions can be beneficial in helping identify patients that might need additional screening. They speak to the question of the individual malignant potential of these lesions and the fact that, well, some malignant transformation has been described in the literature. Um, they are gender generally indolent. And to our knowledge at the time of publication of this article, the patients who have had BIMTs with described malignant transformation, none of them have had recurrence or metastasis from those lesions. So that might support the statement that the behavior of the, these BIMTs may be a little bit more indolent and they might be more of just a marker for this inherited potential risk for skin cancer and other kinds of internal malignancies. So I liked this article for a couple reasons. One, I like the dermoscopic images. They're great pictures. Difficult. And the yeah, it's always difficult to talk about something where the pictures are so important on a podcast, um, but I have sometimes trouble remembering the pictures when I'm actually in clinic seeing patients anyway. So I think my most important takeaway is I, I wouldn't call myself a dermatoscopic nerd, but I'm <laughs> dermatoscopically interested anyways. I use my dermatoscope. So if I see a kind of a funny looking bowl that's mostly skin colored, but has a few dark brown spots within that could be one of these BIMTs, sorry, BIMTs, um, <laughs> or that just a normal macular nevus that also has skin colored papules within also could be one of these BIMTs. And it seems, as you say, the relevance is not so much the lesion itself is scary because they're generally not, but they could indicate that the patient has this um, BAP1 inactivated germline mutation, which puts that amount at a higher risk for other cancers. So I guess after reading this article, what I would do is if I was worried about one of these BIMTs, biopsy it, tell the dermatopathologist I'm worried about this. They do a special stain, as far as I can tell, tell me if I'm right or not. And if I am right, then do I check my patient for like a germline mutation? They do advocate if you identify multiple lesions that would be described as a BIMT that the patient should be 
offered genetic testing because of both the risk to them and possibly to other people in their family since it is an autosomally inherit, dominantly inherited condition. And um, they also recommend when you are looking at a patient, if you find multiple lesions with one or more of the described patterns, it would probably be prudent to biopsy or excise one or two of the lesions to confirm the diagnosis histologically. Uh, it's, you know, certainly they, they recommend a holistic approach, integrating all available data, clinical, dermoscopic, fa family history, and histologic. What I do personally in my practice, because I've been aware of this particular kind of blip on the radar for dermoscopy is when I see multiples of this kind of lesion in a patient, I start asking them questions about family history of malignancy, of different kinds of skin cancer, as well as anybody in the family with any uveal melanoma, any melanoma in the eye, any history of unusual cancers. And if the lesions are significantly worrisome, definitely consider biopsying one or two to see if we have a diagnosis of a BAP1 germline mutation. And I've actually like... found three patients. Hmm. Yeah. And it looks like we haven't come up with a really great um, a consensus screening advice for people who have this mutation. So I think it makes sense to do skin exams frequently, eye exams frequently. The other cancers that they mentioned in the article are mesothelioma and renal cell carcinoma. So I guess mm -hmm. you could do like urinalyses to look for hematuria. Um, I guess have them have a low threshold to come in if they have any pulmonary symptoms, I guess. I don't know what kind of symptoms you get with mesothelioma. You know, they did recommend that, you know, some authors would suggest total skin exam every six months for patients who have that BAP1 germline mutation, as well as an annual ophthalmologic exam and then symptom-based screening for patients who have an identified BAP1 germline mutation. Um, some of the mesotheliomas, I think, were actually mesenteric. So that might yeah. also yeah, be related to nonspecific abdominal pain. But um, I thought that it was a very well-written article. I think the consensus that they drew was very reasonable and the photographs and figures are very helpful. We're going to move on. We're going to talk about little babies. Because <laughs> they're cute and because they have hemangiomas. So as probably most of our listeners know, propranolol is really first line for infantile hemangiomas now, at least those that threaten form or function. And topical timolol is also an option. And this article out of Pediatric Dermatology from May 2019 talks about transitioning from propranolol to topical timolol as a way to shorten overall propranolol course. So the title of the article is Topical Timolol as Adjunct Therapy to Shorten Oral Propranolol Therapy for Infantile Hemangiomas. Um, authors are Diana Manshrek, Amy Huang, Irina Lee, Kevin Soder, and Catherine Putgen. This was a retrospective chart review. This was at Johns Hopkins. They had almost 600 babies with infantile hemangiomas, and they were treated with various combinations of propranolol and timolol. It looks like mostly this was uh, provider-driven decisions or providers talking to their parents. It wasn't a randomized trial. This was a retrospective chart review of patients who happened to have received various treatment regimens. And they had things like people who were just treated with a propranolol and babies who were treated with timolol and then transitioned to propranolol and then babies who had propranolol and then transitioned to timolol and then the timolol propranolol to timolol group. And the upshot is that babies who were treated first with propranolol and then transitioned to timolol 
needed propranolol for about two months less time, and we're about two months younger, which makes sense, when they finished their propranolol course. Which is nice. As far as we know, propranolol is a safe medicine, and I feel like the more we learn about it as pediatric dermatologists, the safer it seems. But it is true that it crosses the blood-brain barrier, and we haven't done some kind of cohort study where we take a thousand babies who receive propranolol and a thousand who didn't and follow them for the next 70 years. Um, though, of course, it has been used in the cardiology world for 50 years or so, and so far seems to be safe. But still, shortening the duration of a systemic medication of any kind seems like a good idea. Um, so they recommend that, or they suggest that starting Topical timolol at the time of propranolol taper minimizes treatment failures and subsequent need to reinitiate propranolol. So in our practice, we treat babies with propranolol, and then when we have parents stop the propranolol, taper it over a week or two just to get them off of it. Oftentimes we see rebound growth. So the hemangioma seems to start getting bigger, starts getting darker, and so then we'll potentially reinitiate propranolol. So doing timolol at the time you stop the propranolol seems to obviate that issue. This article also has a couple nice reminders of the current state of the art in terms of hemangiomas. So the party line has always been, you know, 10% of these involute per year. So 10% by age one and 50% by age five, and they're all involuted by age 10. But more data suggests that they involute a little bit faster than that. So they stop, 92% of them are gone by age four. Um, and then as far as propranolol rebound goes, they cite a database review where about 17% of hemangiomas have rebound growth after finishing propranolol, which is a significant number of them. And then as far as the safety of propranolol, the same review reported about a third of patients who had adverse events, but most of those adverse events were very mild. Sleep disturbance, and I always figure it's tough to tell in an infant if the sleep disturbance is really from the medicine or from something else. They refer to acrocyanosis as an adverse event, though that's not a dangerous thing, just kind of something that parents might notice. So propranolol, pretty safe. They did say 0.8% of their patients experienced what they recall serious adverse events, such as symptomatic hypotension, hypoglycemia, or bradycardia. So, you know, there's reasons to stop systemic medicines, even those that are quite safe. Another thing that I thought was a little bit interesting in this article was they have some nice tables here showing when their patients started propranolol and so on, and the average age that baby started propranolol here at Johns Hopkins was about three and a half months of age, which from a pediatric dermatologist perspective is still like too late. Most of the growth occurs between ages five and seven weeks. So get those patients to us early and start treating as early as we can. And I think I'll probably try this Timolol thing when I get babies off of propranolol and I think they're shrunk as much as they can. The proliferative phase is over. Switch them to Timolol and do that for another month or two. I have a large geographic area of patients that we treat, and we don't have a pediatric dermatologist here, so we all sort of have to do our, our very best that we can. Um, and so for practical reasons, sometimes we actually have been doing this where we'll start the patients on propranolol, and while the lesion is still in its growth or proliferative phase, we continue them through that. And as soon as it starts to show signs of atrophy and you start to see that 
involution, we switch them to the topical timolol because the distance of making the follow-up visits for dose adjustments gets to be a little challenging for the patients. So we start to let them taper by just growing out of their dose and usually start the topical timolol around the same time. And, you know, we've, we've had good results with that approach. Um, I think it's, you know, helped us to get some patients off of the medicine a little bit sooner and decrease their need for driving several hours because we have patients here in Lubbock, Texas that drive all the way from Carlsbad, New Mexico, and people that come from even, you know, we, we do telemedicine with El Paso now, fortunately, but we have people from all over Eastern New Mexico and large swaths of Texas that come to see us because um, there's not a lot of pediatric dermatologists in our area. And, and even though we don't have a board certified one on our faculty or, facul or a fellowship trained one, we are comfortable enough managing the medications, but it is it is a challenge to take care of patients long distance. So that's another potential benefit of this approach. True. Speaking of practical concerns, the timolol they used in this study was what's commonly used in the studies for this stuff, the 0.5% gel forming solution. They used one drop twice a day in all their patients. And I've discovered that some insurances don't like to cover that particular formulation of Timolol, and it's sort of surprisingly expensive, especially for patients of limited financial means. It can be 60 to $100 for a little bottle. So in those cases, I usually just switch them to the 0.5% not gel-forming solution, which I feel is basically the same, just a little bit more difficult to apply because it's sort of runnier. Yeah, I agree with you. Often for that same reason in our patients that are uh, a little bit more financially constrained where their insurance won't cover it, we use the same version, which is basically just an eye drop. Yeah. So speaking of babies, uh, my next article talks about utilization of laser therapy during pregnancy, a systematic review of the maternal and fetal effects reported from 1960 to 2017. So they discussed that understandably, pregnant women are not lining up to have experiments performed upon them and their unborn babies. And there are concerns, of course, for maternal and fetal safety with any treatment uh, during pregnancy. So patients are usually not going to be enrolled in a randomized controlled study to study laser safety. However, um, there is, you know, a nice wealth of information from some trials uh, for necessary treatments that are done in pregnancy with different laser devices. And so they decided to look at 22 publications in the literature reporting the use of various laser wavelengths in 380 pregnant women during all trim trimesters of pregnancy. And other than one case of premature rupture of membranes that they're not sure was associated with the laser treatment, which in that case was CO2 for a vulvar condyloma, they didn't have any reports of any significant ill effects. This is an article out of Dermatologic Surgery from April 2019. Let's give a shout out to our authors. Oh, their authors, yeah. Eric Wilkerson and David Goldberg. And colleagues. And colleagues, yes. So um, while we have not a lot of evidence of how to, you know, of, of basically randomized controlled studies of pregnant women on laser therapy, we do have some case reports and case series that indicate that this cutaneous laser treatment during pregnancy is safe for both mother and fetus. They also go into a little bit that laser physics and optics dictate that there shouldn't theoretically be a risk of fetal exposure from commonly used cutaneous lasers. And they go into that a little bit um, in the article. So one of the things they advocate for is that many of the potential changes that can happen 
in pregnancy could be responsive to laser therapy, which could include acne, granuloma gravidarum, vascular lesions, verruque, condyloma, keloids, hypertrichosis, and hyperpigmentation, and that these are things that the patient potentially could be treated with with a laser with relatively low risk. In fact, for patients who have severe acne, uh, some of the other medications we use are much more significantly contraindicated in a pregnant patient, and laser therapy may actually be much more safe for both the patient and for their baby. Uh, they do advocate, as I think any study would, that you avoid the first trimester if possible because that is the most important trimester for organogenesis. And there's also a baseline 12% risk for spontaneous abortion or miscarriage. So you don't want to do a treatment in a patient who has that elevated baseline risk and then have the patient and, and yourself potentially wonder, oh, you know, was this a mistake to do this at this time? So that first trimester, I know even people who do like massage therapy won't do a massage for a patient. Something that sounds as innocuous as a massage isn't done in a patient who's known to be pregnant in their first trimester. You also don't want the lawyers to be wondering about that question. <laughs> That's true. It's always better to keep them not questioning your practice. The number of the miscarriage or spontaneous abortion decreases to 5% in the second and third trimesters, and organogenesis is usually complete by that time. The second trimester is actually thought to be the safest time to do any kind of intervention because the risk of premature labor is lower during that time period. So beyond week 20, they feel the fetus is resistant to developmental defects. The third trimester has some risk of premature birth, so you have to think about that. Um, they've thought about, you know, the possibility of maternal discomfort and stress affecting, you know, fetal development or fetal wellness, but that's actually never been demonstrated. So there's actually no report of maternal laser therapy inducing fetal stress, and that I think is a fairly reassuring thing. The way that they did this search was they used the Cochrane Library, PubMed, Google Scholar, EBSCO, and uh, several other databases, and they used a mesh search. Uh, to include terms including pregnancy, complications, fetal risk, abortion, physiological fetal stress, laser safety, laser therapy, and patient safety. And then they actually searched several of the different laser subtypes as well. They also conducted a legal search of an academic database called LexisNexis to identify legal cases uh, that might have pregnant patients with potentially a laser treatment contributing towards fetal harm. And the terms they used for that were similar to the ones that they used for the MeSH search. And they had 76 legal cases that were generated, no cited ligations, uh, sorry, litigations, identified or proved laser therapy as a cause of fetal harm or termination during pregnancy. So the different kinds of lasers that they had data on included a 504 pulse dye laser, which was used largely to treat condyloma. Uh, I'm sorry, which was used, that, that one was used, I apologize, that was used for lithotripsy, my apologies. Uh, 532 KTP laser, they did a 1064 ND YAG, a 2100 Holmium YAG, and a 10600 CO2 laser. That's the one that was used for condyloma. They had no evidence for spontaneous abortion, fetal malformation, or preterm labor, secondary to laser therapy for any indication. They had one patient with premature rupture of the membranes four days after CO2 laser for condyloma. And so that treatment had been performed in that patient at 35 weeks. And the cause of the rupture was unclear. They weren't certain it was related to the laser procedure. The baby was delivered at 36 weeks with no complications. 
they had two other patients that had premature rupture of membranes at seven and 10 weeks after CO2 laser for condyloma that were not believed to be related to the procedure. And the overall premature rupture of membranes rate in that study of CO2 laser treatment for condyloma in pregnant patients did not, stick, did not differ statistically from the rate in the matched control group. They did give two patients tocolytics in that study. Um, again, even with the tocolytics, the premature labor rate didn't differ from the control group. So they didn't feel that that was causing or inducing premature labor or premature rupture of membranes. Uh, they do mention an important safety feature, which I think we should always think about when we're treating things with lasers, especially things like condyloma, which ties back to our previous article about HPV and why dermatologists should think about getting that HPV vaccine, is that we don't know what's contained in the laser plumes. So they do recommend that if you're doing any kind of laser therapy on a patient that's pregnant, that they wear the N95 mask to minimize inhalation of any kind of laser plume, because there are some chemicals that have been identified that are teratogens or potential teratogens in the laser plumes that it's probably not a good idea for people to be inhaling at any stage of their life, but especially if they're currently just dating a little baby. And I thought it was nice that they discussed the possible treatment of acne and rosacea with different kinds of lasers and the safety in the cases that they reviewed, because some patients that are pregnant can develop very severe, socially disabling and painful acne and rosacea during their pregnancy one of the studies they kind of talked about actually res resulted in 100% clearance of active inflammatory lesions with no reported pregnancy-related complications uh, for patients who are taken care of with some NDAG lasers during pregnancy, which would be a nice alternative to be able to offer patients because everything else that we can do for them involves some risk, even the safer antibiotics we can give them during pregnancy. For so sure. Thought, yeah, so I thought that that was nice. And there's this thought that while you're pregnant, you should basically do nothing that you don't absolutely have to. But um, I don't. that's not necessarily true. As you point out, a lot of these conditions, even something as seemingly banal as acne, can have significant impacts on somebody's life. And, you know, presumably if you're feeling socially isolated and depressed from your acne, your brain releases some kind of biochemistry that could potentially be harmful to the fetus as well. So like, there's no free ride. And from a cultural standpoint, this is getting a little bit far afield here, but I think in our culture, there's this thought that parents and pregnant women should kind of be martyrs. And if you're not suffering, you're somehow not doing it right. And if you do something to take care of yourself, you're necessarily like not doing right by your children. And that just doesn't seem like a healthy cultural attitude to take toward people who are pregnant, which is hard enough, and people who are parents, which is hard enough. I agree. I, I definitely agree with that. They also report, interestingly, that um, the European Society for Laser Dermatology um, reported vascular laser IPL light sources have no direct impact on pregnancy. So their guidelines actually restrict laser treatment to the third trimester, but in Europe they have a little bit more of a, I think, holistic approach to training the patients, whereas in the United States, they recommended guidelines for laser therapy during pregnancy have not been established. So um, they had one patient that they actually treated on the abdomen with CO2 laser because she had burn scars that were restricting her abdominal growth. So they treated her kind of out of necessity with CO2 fractionated laser to allow for her gestational growth of her abdomen and that improved her comfort and functionality. She had a healthy baby at 40 weeks. 
with C-section and no complications for that child. Um, they talk nicely about some of the physical properties of laser light therapy and the fact that, you know, penetration into tissues is usually not deep enough to affect even the slenderest of pregnant women. Uh, so even even the supermodels of, among us that are pregnant don't have a thin enough abdomen for the depth of penetration to be meaningful. And um, the fact that, you know, even even the you know most powerful lasers that we have typically wouldn't get deeper than 10 millimeters into the tissue. Infrared lasers may reach depths of one to two centimeters, but the average thickness of a pregnant abdomen is 30 millimeters. So at least three centimeters. So the likelihood that through the uterus, amniotic fluid, and abdominal wall, the likelihood of any kind of meaningful light or radiation penetrating that area to reach the fetus is pretty much impossible. Um, they noted that direct visible light on gametes and embryos of various species have shown some effects, but nothing has been ever proven with human gametes or embryos. Um, it has been shown to be potentially harmful to non-primate mammalian gametes and embryos, but that is direct irradiation of cells basically in a Petri dish. Um, there was a experiment shining light into the abdomen of certain pregnant small mammals that resulted in small but significant amounts of light re reaching the uterus, which may potentially cause changes in fetal circadian rhythm, developing, uh, affecting physiologic development of the visual or the visual system but that wasn't known if that would be positive, negative, or inconsequential. We may just be making the next set of superheroes if we managed somehow to do that to humans. Uh, there's also some evidence that in late gestation, human fetuses can potentially see low light in utero, depending on abdominal thickness, but whether that affects development is unclear. Uh, it's certainly, I think you could potentially use some kind of occlusive apron if you were very worried about that, unless you were trading on the abdom abdominal skin, as was the case with that burn patient. Uh, but I think that, you know, they make a convincing case for the fact that there have been no reported ev evidence of significant harm to the mother or fetus in laser therapy during any stage of pregnancy. And while it's not possible that all that it, while it's possible that not all adverse events have been reported, the available information shows a very high level of safety and that including use of visible near near infrared infrared wavelengths in all trimesters of pregnancy may potentially be therapeutic and the benefits may outweigh the risk. So mostly what I learned was that if I zap my pregnant belly with a laser, I'll give my baby superpowers. <laughs> yes, no. that's exactly that. That's how you get vision from that's the a, Avengers. That's a joke. Don't do that. <laughs> um, the one of the things I thought was especially reassuring about this article was that they cited some of the indications for laser treatment in their review, and they included things like cervical adenocarcinoma, cervical carcinoma in situ. So these are laser procedures that are being performed on the cervix, and mm -hmm. the patients are still fine. Yeah, I thought that was impressive, too. It's a relatively invasive procedure, very close to the baby, and still no adverse effects. Our last article is about dupilumab. So this is a, from JAMA Dermatology. Uh, 2019, this is a group out of Stanford, including Drs. Zhu and Dr. Honari. Again, apologize if I'm butchering any of these names. And, is it Galara Honari? Uh, yeah. Yep, also a friend. <laughs> you just know everybody. <laughs> I have friends too, Michelle. <laughs> so this was an article looking at some adverse effects of dupilumab. 
um, specifically what they refer to as new regional dermatoses. So uh, I haven't been using dupilumab for very long. I think I only have two or three patients who are on it. Um, but they had a lot more, and I guess they've been noticing that patients develop a dermatosis that's not their eczema and is located in you know a particular part of their body. And so they performed this retrospective review about these new regional dermatoses. So this was all of a, all adults in their Stanford system who are on dupilumab before November 2018. Um, they had 73 patients in, included for analysis, and about a quarter of them, 17 patients, 23%, developed these new regional dermatoses, which is a fair number of them. And they characterized all these dermatoses, but the majority of them were eczematous, and the majority of them were on the face, and the majority of them got better with topical steroids, but it took them about three months before they got better. And they had some inclusion criteria for you to have a rash that they counted as a new regional dermatosis. Um, they list them here, but basically we all have to be reassured that this isn't just their eczema that happens to be getting worse. So it had to be in a different location or it had to look different or it had to not respond to the normal treatments that got it better and that kind of thing. Only four patients had to stop taking Dupi because of new regional dermatoses, so something that's treatable. And they posit in this article that these new regional dermatoses could represent an allergic contact dermatitis that's being unmasked by the medication. So presumably this allergic contact dermatitis would be some kind of product their patients were putting on their faces, which could also explain the eczematous nature and the anatomic location. Uh, they point out that that can't explain all of the new regional dermatoses because they had a couple patients who were extensively patch tested and didn't show anything. But this altered immune milieu that you get after you're on dupilumab might allow various conditions to kind of manifest themselves when they wouldn't otherwise. If you have an autoimmune disease, you're more likely to get one of these new regional dermatoses when you start dupi. Or if you had atopic dermatitis as a child, you're more likely to get one of them. I think one of the other things they bring forward a little bit is the increased risk of conjunctivitis on therapy. I know that's a highly testable board spotter piece of information for those people who are in training about dupilumab, and it's one of the side effects that I think is most commonly hammered on in, in that kind of potential educational setting. Um, you know, I think that considering the possibility of allergic contact dermatitis in these patients is a very good idea. A lot of people are, you know, kind of applying the kitchen sink to these poor kids because they're so badly broken out and inflamed. And I think sometimes we are dealing with a mixed picture in patients who have atopic dermatitis, but have been treating it with a variety of topicals for a very long time. So sometimes their baseline exposure is increased and we know their barriers damaged. These are all adults in this study. Um, it hasn't been approved for kids for very long at all. So presumably we'll look into them later. One thing I did quite understand here is that they mentioned that they had 124 patients identified but only about 60% of them were included for analysis. And I, I don't understand why the rest of them weren't included for analysis, but I'm sure they had their reasons. You know the, the senior author, so- you, I'll have to you, ask. You can verify that uh, <laughs> she knows what she's doing. She's a very bright woman. Um, that's all for this one, but I thought it was helpful, uh, especially since the side effect is so common, about 20% or a quarter of patients 
um, who start to pill map, so I'll know to watch for it and that it's probably treatable and I could consider patch testing if I was particularly concerned about an allergic contact component. It is good to know that there might be something that would worsen after initiation of therapy with dupilumab because, you know, we always expect things to kind of get significantly better when we start one of these biologic agents. And it's always a good thing to be aware of the downstream side effects that might occur, such as, you know, patients developing different kinds of eruptions on the TNF inhibitors. This is something we need to be aware about with dupilumab. So that's all for this show, listeners. Um, to recap, what we learned today uh, was that the cutaneous adverse effects of antimalarials in lupus and dermatomyositis don't happen very often and happen 5 to 14 days after starting hydroxychloroquine and are not all that serious, and you might even be able to re-challenge them with hydroxychloroquine. We learned that, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say also that dermatomyositis patients may not be more likely to have hydroxychloroquine-related adverse cutaneous drug reactions than patients with cutaneous lupus erythematosus. Yes, so bust it out. <laughs> the HPV vaccine, potentially a reasonable treatment option for cutaneous warts and genital warts. We learned In the about... words of Nike, let's say just do it and get the vaccine. Right, hashtag branding. <laughs> Um, we learned about BIMTs that have a dermoscopic appearance, that skin-colored, irregular dots. They've got these new tumors developing within. The BIMTs themselves are not considered dangerous, but could be a marker for a germline mutation that increases the patient's risk of other cancers. Propranolol followed by timolol to treat infantile hemangiomas may reduce the total amount of propranolol that babies get. Lasers appear to be safe in pregnancy, though the recommendation, of course, is to do it in the second trimester if you have a choice. And then we learned that dupilumab can give you new regional dermatoses, mostly on the face, that you could hopefully treat with topical steroids. Again, if you want links to the original articles, visit our website, dermospherepodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us that way. You can see some of our archive, though this is episode two, so the archive is rather short right now, but presumably it will be expanding. Thanks a lot for listening, guys. We'll see you next time.